welcome everybody to this week's podcast episode for the Financial Freedom for Physicians podcast. And I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Liu. And as you know, we talk about the four pillars of freedom, time, location, financial, and health freedom. And in that light, I'm always interested in bringing on guests that are physicians, non-physicians, high-income earners, business owners, investors, to stimulate the discussion, inspire people, and educate. So in that light, we have a really interesting guest, Brian DeMint, and he's actually the author of Bitcoin Evangelism. And, you know, cryptocurrency is really a very controversial subject. Some people believe in it, some people don't, which is why I brought him onto the show. And it's going to be a fascinating discussion, you know, whether you believe in Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatnot. But um, I'll let Brian introduce himself. So Brian, welcome. Well, thanks for having me on, Christopher. I appreciate it. And this is actually kind of self-serving. So I know you thought we were going to talk about Bitcoin, but I actually dislocated a few ribs the other day. So I was going to take my shirt off and see if you could do a physical. Is that okay? No, <laughs> no, no. Okay. okay. Not appropriate. Okay. So anyways, um, yeah, my, my background is I've, I've, I've been an entrepreneur since the age of 22. I'm 36 right now. My wife and I started a business that's still, we, we still operate to this day. It's just a local, local chain of stores. Um, so I've been... It, I've had the entrepreneurial bug for a long time, but that's given me the freedom. I mean, you mentioned the freedom of time. Um, that's one of the great freedoms of, of investing is, is if we can put ourselves in a position to have our money work for us, it allows us to focus on other things that we like and other passions. So I, I've been able to devote the last 10 plus years to studying economics. I, I didn't study economics in school. I had a degree in human behavioral sciences and psychology. So I wanted to be an FBI criminal profiler when I was going to college. And uh, I mean, my, my, my career couldn't have taken more of a 180 degree turn. Um, but anyway, so uh, in 2012, I, I came across Bitcoin for the first time. Um, the first, most people, when they first hear about Bitcoin, rightfully so, you should be skeptical. Like if you have half of a brain, you should think Bitcoin's a scam. That should be everybody's first reaction to it. So if anybody's out there is skeptical, perfect. You're in the right boat. It means you're smart um, because we should be co you know, cognizant of, of, of those types of traps and things like that. The first time I heard of it was uh, I was watching. I, I don't watch college football that much, but I was watching Saturday college football and college game day. They, they had like the announcers before the game on the sidelines and they were talking about the pregame stuff. And behind them, there was a bunch of college students. And this guy had a sign that said, hey, mom, send Bitcoin. And he had a QR code on it. I said, what's, what's Bitcoin? Um, and so I, a few days later, I had forgotten about that. And a few days later, I, I remembered it. And so I Googled it. Hey, whatever happened with that kid, you know, in college game day. And apparently the Bitcoin nerds at the time, that was like the biggest thing that had ever happened in Bitcoin because Bitcoin, nobody knew about it. And all of a sudden it's on ESPN. So all the online forums, the Bitcoiners are bragging, oh, we're on ESPN, Bitcoin's famous. And, and we're gonna, you know, the price is gonna go to the moon. It turned out that kid, had something like $24,000 worth of Bitcoin sent to him because all the Bitcoin nerds were so excited that Bitcoin was on ESPN that they scanned the QR code and sent this kid. Uh, I mean, can you imagine being in college and getting $24,000 sent to you? Um, and so I just, that proved to me that it was a scam. I'm like, look it, it's for internet nerds. It's it's for college kids that, that are just wanting, you know, some beer money or something like that. And so I, I really dismissed it um, as very, just with very skeptical eyes. I, you know, studied a, a little bit, just enough to say it's a Ponzi scheme, it's a pyramid scheme, um, those types of things. Uh, about a year later, um, I was listening to a podcast with, uh, sorry, I'm long-winded, so I'm always gonna have, you're gonna have to cut me back on these answers, but uh, this, it, it, this is kind of gives you some background on where I come from. 
um, I was listening to the Joe Rogan Experience podcast and he had this guy on named Andreas Antonopoulos. This was in 2013. And the light bulb moment that, that I had was when he said, in the history of computer science up until now, we've never had a way to make digital things scarce. So if you think about it, if you type something into a Word document, you can just highlight it, copy and paste it, and then duplicate it endlessly, right? You can take digital things and you, there's no limiting factor. You can just make digital things infinite. And uh, we saw that with the music industry, right? When, when MP3 files came out, music went from CDs and tapes to digital, the music industry changed, right? When I was in high school, when, when LimeWire and, and uh, Napster and all those things came out, I remember I loved downloading stolen music because I didn't know it was illegal. I just thought like, oh, you can go to a website and download music for free. That's, that's great. But that proved that as soon as things went digital, there was no way to stop people from copying them endlessly, right? It transformed the music industry because now all of a sudden these things that used to be scarce, music files, because you could only just, you could only, you had to buy a certain amount of CDs or records or whatever to get music. Now you can make it endless. And when this guy, Andreas Antonopoulos said, he goes, until computer science came out with Bitcoin and blockchain, that was what was so instrumental about that, what was so paradigm shifting about that was all of a sudden, you have digital things can be capped. Digital things can be made scarce. So if you're gonna make digital money, you have to be able to make it scarce or capped. So that was the light bulb moment in 2013 for me. Um, and it kind of forces you to go down this rabbit hole of study of, of macroeconomics and Austrian economics and all sorts of things. Um, but that led me, so I'd been in the industry kind of as an investor and just a learner. In 2013, I officially started working in the industry. I worked as a chief marketing officer for a blockchain company for three years. And what I found through that process was every time we would go to uh, venture capitalists and these guys would be managing hundreds of millions of dollars, we would do a pitch. We had this really sophisticated blockchain project and then we tell them why it's going to help their company. And at the end of the pitch, they'd say, wait, hold on. We need to back up. What's blockchain and what's Bitcoin? And we're thinking, you guys call the meeting with us, but they just heard, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain are these sexy terms that we, we know we need to get involved in. And so these venture capital guys were calling meetings with us, but they didn't even know what it was, right? And these guys are super sophisticated money guys and they didn't know. So after doing, you know, a dozen of those meetings where these really smart guys didn't know what blockchain was, I kind of took a step back and I said, you know what? There's a huge information gap here, right? I believe this technology is paradigm shifting. And when I say paradigm shifting, I mean like, the world looks different from before the internet until now. And I think that same thing's gonna happen with the internet of value, which is what blockchain is. It's the internet of being able to send value. The same thing's gonna happen from before blockchain till after blockchain, right? We're talking about that kind of seismic shift, but most people don't understand that yet. And so that's when I actually resigned from that marketing role at that blockchain firm. And I'm like, I'm just gonna focus on writing this book so that I can help people kind of get you know, guided into stage one of understanding Bitcoin and blockchain. So that brings me to here today and talking about everything Bitcoin and blockchain. So I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think we, you and I, we follow similar paths. I, I wrote, I read the white paper in uh, 2009 and, and at that time it reminded me of what PayPal was doing. So I was like, mm -hmm. right now, but it was just so appreciative of what the internet era, era did. I know it's going to, you know, you have the you have the believers you have the skeptics um you know we can you know we could talk endlessly you know bitcoins made the uh, but what what makes it um what makes bitcoin special what what is it um that really distinguishes you know why is it on bloomberg you know they have the ticker symbol um uh, tell us more 
Well, I think there's there's kind of two parts to that question. So why I think it gets on Bloomberg at the financial channels is actually for the reason I don't appreciate about it very much is, I mean, I want the price to go up a Bitcoin because I obviously, and nobody doesn't want their investment to go up. But to me, that's like the least important part right now for people. Bloomberg cares about Bitcoin because they're, they don't care about the technology. They just care about, oh, if you hold it for long enough, the price is going to go up. And so, you know, this speculative aspect and it, that's also what kind of creates this speculative fervor within Bitcoin is this concept that, um, you know, if you looked at Bloomberg and the mainstream financial channels, they were talking about Bitcoin when Bitcoin was at 69,000, 70,000. They were telling people, you need to buy Bitcoin, you need to jump in. That was at the top of the market. But here we are. You are gracious enough to invite me on your show when the market's bottoming. To me, that's a much more like a genuine approach to it. Like, hey, let's talk about Bitcoin when it's not the sexy thing to talk about, when it's like a little bit, you know, it's it's almost taboo right now because everybody's, you know, if you bought Bitcoin at 70,000 and now it's at 20,000, you're looking like, you're feeling like an idiot type of thing. But I think that's the time we should be talking about it is when we're talking about this fundamental change in technology. And so I, I think that the mainstream people talk about it for the wrong reason is this like, hey, there's this speculative fervor, get on or, you know, you're gonna miss the boat. I think there should be a fervor around it, but in terms of the technology. And so what makes the technology to me, I literally had to write a book to make sure, to make the full case for it. But if I had to give the elevator pitch, what I would say was, it's the first time ever that we can interact through the internet peer to peer um, with money, right? And so right now people think that if um, I Venmo you money, if I were to Venmo Christopher $10, that that's a peer to peer transaction. It's actually not, it's a five party transaction. So it sounds like I'm kind of blowing smoke right here. It's not, there's me, I have to give permission to send the funds. Then my bank say Wells Fargo has to approve that. Then Venmo is gonna be the payment rail. They actually, they use Visa payment rails, I believe. So there's also Visa involved. And then there's your receiving bank, um, say it's Bank of America says that you can receive it. And then finally Christopher on the other side. So there's anywhere from three to six parties involved in any given transaction. And so we think that we have peer to peer money right now, but Bitcoin is different. If I sent Bitcoin through, if I sent you know $10 worth of Bitcoin through the blockchain to you, there's nobody between us. There's this like non-sentient algorithm that just says, if person A puts in $10 of value and wants it to go to person B, I'm gonna process that transaction. There's no there's no middleman. It's, it's an algorithm that does this. And so Christopher and I can interact in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion, which never existed. In the history of money, this has never existed. It exists in cash, right? Physically, we can hand each other cash or we can physically hand each other gold coins. But in the digital economy, it doesn't work that way. And so that's a it's a fundamental change in the way that we send value. To me, that's probably the most compelling thing about Bitcoin. Yeah. And on on top, you know, Bitcoin is almost the first financial application of the blockchain, but you know, the underlying technology is a blockchain. And what makes the blockchain so special? Yeah. So it goes back to that. So uh Bitcoin is using a blockchain to send value. Um, but there's all sorts of things that we might want decentralized tools, right? So some people might say we want decentralized voting, right? I mean, people will get concerned about, and we, we saw this on both sides, right? Like it's kind of taboo to say as a Republican to say, oh, talk about, you know, uh, voting systems being corrupted. But if you go back to 2016, the Democrats were talking about voting systems. So pretty much whoever loses is always going to say the voting system's corrupted. And I get that. Like when my side loses, I'm going to say the voting system's corrupted. 
But both in the last eight years, both parties have said, oh my gosh, there was a, you know, there was, there was some inherent flaw in our voting system. So I think the thing that we could all agree on is if you had a way to one, protect your own information. If I could anonymize my information to the outside world, but I was able to see my vote recorded on a public ledger, that's a pretty revolutionary and fair way to say, do something like elections. Um, you could also do things like the way that there might be a shift in commerce. So one of the examples I use in the book is uh, using smart contracts. Now we can go down the rabbit hole what smart contracts are, but it's basically using a blockchain to perform functions. And so we could create, we could decentralize something like Uber. Right now, Uber is a, a great company, but what they do was they, they pair two parties, right? They act as a middleman between two parties. So there's people with a car that are ready to give somebody a ride and there's people that need a ride and Uber takes the 25% cut. That's great, that's capitalism and they're, they're providing a service that's awesome, but we could have a blockchain that just simply matches riders and drivers. And what happens when you remove that 25% cut, the driver could say, you know, they could act like their own entrepreneur. They could say, okay, well, I'm gonna charge 15% more than I used to because now I can have a greater profit margin, but that's still gonna be a 10% price drop from when Uber was taking their cut. So what happens to commerce when margins go up and then volume goes up? Because when you drop your prices, you're gonna get more customers, right? And so we can have a decentralization in commerce. Um, any kind of place where you see a middleman, Theoretically, you could have a blockchain decentralize that. Now that's kind of an overly grandiose statement, um, but that's kind of theoretically what we're talking about here. Yeah, it, it's so fascinating because we're still in the early stages. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, you know, both sides of the coin we were talking about, but and now, you know, I think is the best time to be talking about this, as you mentioned. And why is it, you know, even my, um, let's say my parents or my grandparents, they they won't invest in Bitcoin because you know they don't need to. But why do people need to know about it? Why is it so mm -hmm. important? Yeah, I, to me, it's it's freedom money. I mean, it, this is what, like I said when you go down the the study of Bitcoin, it kind of causes you to study other things. It causes you to study how our banking system works, causes you to study how um, you know kind of world economies work and things like that. One of the things I go through is I give everybody a shotgun blast throughout the book about. Our, our banking system. Most people don't understand that our, our banking system is what's called a fractional reserve banking system. Um, it's essentially, I know I used the term earlier, a Ponzi scheme. Like our banking system is, is actually a legal Ponzi scheme. If 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 what the if what our banks did was if you and I did that, if we opened a business and replicated that model and didn't have the legal protections, we could go to jail for the rest of our lives by operating a business that way. So in a nutshell, what fractional reserve banking is, and probably some of your audience is familiar with this, but if I deposit $100 into the bank, the bank doesn't just hold my $100, like they, their business model is predicated on lending money. They don't really make a lot of money by holding my money, they make it on lending money. And so they have the, the legal ability to lend out 98 of my $100. And now different jurisdictions, you can actually, they might not have any reserve amount. Like legally, they're supposed to hold $2 of my $100 in reserve. Um, but there's banks that actually don't have to hold any reserves like that because they're FDIC insured. There's like this legal protection up to $250,000. If the bank became insolvent, the government would step in and, oh, well, we owe Christopher, you know, he had $150,000 in his bank account. The government, you know, the bank can't pay him back, but the government will pay him back. That's a huge problem, right? <laughs> if, if, uh, if there was a bank run right now, if everybody went to the bank and pulled out 
tried to pull out all of their money, you would literally be able to pull out only 2% of the people would be able to pull out their money. I mean, that's, that's the fact of the matter. That's a crazy thought, right? If we all went to the bank right now, only the first 2% of people that pull out their money are going to get their money. The rest of the money would be paid back to them at a later date by the federal government. But we're in an era where we're talking about inflation, right? What would happen in terms of inflation if the government had to print enough money to cover everybody's bank account? You would be talking about inflation on a level that's completely unsustainable. So yes, you would get paid back your $150,000 you had in the bank, but that $150,000 would buy you significantly less than it would have before this banking crisis. So um, to bring it full circle back to Bitcoin, fractional reserve banking, our current banking system, is a very opaque system. It's kind of predicated on people not knowing how it works. And so it gets to operate in the shadows. Um, with Bitcoin, it's fully transparent. The ledger is transparent. You can't create fake Bitcoins and lend them out. You can't do anything like that. Um, you can go to centralized institutions and do that, right? Mistakenly, people take their Bitcoin and they, they lend it to essentially what's like a bank. And then they, you know, there's, there's problems with that. But if you just hold your Bitcoin yourself, there's really no risk of that. There's no risk of, uh, of, a, of a financial institution becoming insolvent. And so there's, if, if, uh, if the traditional system is opaque, Bitcoin is completely transparent on the other end of it. So it just, it kind of depends how people want to operate. And in a democracy or a constitutional republic, more specifically, as Americans, we're kind of conditioned to think that, yeah, we should operate in transparency rather than than in the shadows and so that's kind of the side that i gravitate towards yeah that's awesome yeah the other thing is um so you know what's interesting is the another currency known as ethereum they're gonna upgrade upgrade to a new um proof of stake mechanism you know but um what's the difference between bitcoin and other cryptos you know ethereum and solana tell us more yeah that's a great question um so there's like an infinite am amount of cryptocurrencies out there. <laughs> uh, the, the, it is important to, to talk about Bitcoin, and really, there's there's Bitcoin, and technically everything else is called an altcoin. Bitcoin is really the only one that has the the properties of sound money, and so Bitcoin really is in a category in and of itself. Not all cryptocurrencies have a limited supply. For example, Bitcoin has a total supply of 21 million. There will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin in existence. Um, we know how much Bitcoin is going to get created every day. So it's a very predictable, like I said, very transparent. Not all blockchains operate like that. Um, and not all blockchains, to your point, want to be money, though. And so it's important to understand, like there's there's other blockchains that are just like a cruddy version of Bitcoin. And so it's like, let's just disregard those because they're trying to be money, but they don't have decentralization. They don't have security or any of the things that Bitcoin has. But I think there's worthy blockchains out there like Ethereum. I, I, I hold Ethereum. I look at Ethereum as more of a technology than like a money. Um, but the easiest way for me to think of the distinction between Bitcoin and Ethereum would be like this. Think of your iPhone. Sorry about that. I kind of, kind of froze for a second. The easiest way to think about it would be like your iPhone. If uh, Bitcoin is money, it's like Apple Pay and Ethereum would be like the App Store. They're two parts of the iPhone. They're not necessarily competing with one another. So if I want to pay for something, I'm going to use Apple Pay. But if I want Netflix or Uber or any of those other applications, I'm going to go to Ethereum. And Ethereum is like a protocol for all of those applications we talked about, like decentralized voting or decentralized Uber or decentralized Netflix. Decentralized entities will exist on top of the Ethereum protocol. 
where money uh, or almost like a gold or a store of value will exist on the Bitcoin protocol. Yeah, it's a very excellent um, analogies. And I think the audience, you know, can at least appreciate, um, you know, what you're saying. And these are really early technologies and they have properties that combine, you know, traditional way of thinking and finance and way of interacting, communicating and where the world is going. So it's really exciting to be, you know, part of this. And uh, it's, you know, it's the, in my opinion, it's bigger than the, what the in- internet is doing, has done. So, um, and I know you wrote a book. I'm going to check it out as soon as we finish this conversation, but tell us more about that and how I can find you, follow you, work with you and contact you. Great. Well, thank you. Um, I'm very active on social media. So if anybody is on Instagram or on Twitter, I'm pretty easy to find and, and reach out there. Um, my Instagram is brian.dement, D-E-M-I-N-T. And then my Twitter handle is at Brian V, T-H-E, Mint, M-I-N-T. Um, I get people all the time that ask me because <laughs> in in uh, the cryptocurrency space, like minting coins is a big deal. They're like, oh yeah, like Brian Dement's like your stage name for crypto. I'm like, nope, that, that's, my, that's my birth name. Um, so a lot of times people think it's like a pseudonym. Nope. It's my actual name. Um, but the, the best place to get the book is on Amazon. Um, I have a website. It's called freshlymintedbooks.com. You can get it on there, but Amazon's great. I like when I sell it through Amazon, I make less money. They take a, they take a royalty off of it, but I do get to be on the bestsellers list. And so it's been as high as number seven in the inflation category on the Amazon bestsellers list. So it's really gotten some good traction. Um, and inflation is such a hot topic right now. So it's, it's really an honor to, to be kind of in that conversation. I mean, even some of the books that I read for research for my book, it's like beating those books out. And so I feel like that's kind of messed up, <laughs> you know, cause I, 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 I took some of their inspiration and, and have been able to, uh, pass them on the bestsellers list right now. But yeah, I think it's because people are very interested in this stuff. And so, um, going back to your earlier questions of why this stuff matters, um, and I make the case throughout the book that fiat currencies, and that's that's the type of currency system we have too. I know I talked about the banking system, but our, our type of currency, fiat currencies have a historically a historical precedent of 100% failure. Fiat currencies never live forever. Um, and so we have a fiat currency since 1971, since we've been off the gold standard, we've been a pure fiat currency, which means it only has value by decree because the government says it does. And so... Uh, that's a that's a risky game. It's a, it's a risky game that has a historical case of going to failure 100% of the time. And why that happens is because governments are incentivized without getting political, and this is true, but both parties in the United States, both major parties are big spending parties. Like Joe Biden spent a lot of money, Trump spent a lot of money. I mean, like both parties are, are big spenders. And so it's, it's because when you can take on debt in your currency but then you also have the ability to print that currency like there's no reason like imagine in your own personal finances if you could just like buy a boat and buy an extra house and buy this and but like you also had a money printer like what would stop you nobody would be responsible with that type of power Um, and so historically governments always take on massive amounts of debt and then they're encouraged to not only print more to pay for that debt service but they're encouraged to print more so they want to cause inflation i know there's this thing like oh we're trying not to make inflation that's i believe just a narrative we're trying to wrestle with inflation governments love inflation because it makes their dollar denominated debt cost less and less think about your mortgage payment your mortgage payment's a fixed payment if you have a house and a mortgage 
you actually kind of like inflation. It means your payment becomes cheaper every year that goes by. I'm not saying inflation's good because it, it, you know, costs pop up in other areas, but when you have fixed rate debt, inflation is kind of your friend. And so that's true also for people that hold assets. If you hold assets long-term, inflation's actually good for your investment portfolio. And the short-term, you're gonna see volatility, you're gonna see panics in the market and things like that. But when you invest in good quality assets, over the long-term, inflation, it, it sadly hurts people in the lowest classes because they keep most of their wealth in currency. But people that keep their wealth in assets, investments, and things like that, they actually benefit tremendously over the long term. Yeah. What a fantastic conversation. What a excellent way to end it um, for all the listeners and all the audience. Brian's uh, resources will be in the links and show notes. Be sure to check out his book, um, Bitcoin Evangelism on Amazon. I'm going to check it out right, uh, right after this call. And um, thanks so much for coming on to the show. And we look forward to hearing more about your future success. Oh, cool. thank you, Christopher. I appreciate it. And thank you everybody for having me on.